The Geotechnical Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Hello, and welcome to the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. In this episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, I'll be talking with Dr. Aaron Sibley, PE, a geotechnical and tunnel engineer from Mont McDonald. She'll be talking to us about the importance of cultivating curiosity and engineering judgment as a geoprofessional, and also she'll touch on earthquake and tunnel engineering and how it ties into non-technical elements, such as the people-centric focus of engineering, building professional relationships, and lifelong learning. I'm your host, Jared Green, and this is the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast, a podcast focused on helping geotechnical engineers stay up to date with technical trends in the field. And with that, let's jump right into today's episode. Well, Aaron, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Doing great, Jared. Thanks. Excellent. It's been a while since we've talked, but I'm glad that you're able to make it onto the show today. Really looking forward to our conversation. Thanks. It's always nice chatting with a fellow University of Illinois alum. Well, I would love it if you could give our listeners some insights regarding your career journey to date and also walk us through what is it you do on a daily basis? So I know that many fellow engineers can probably relate to this, but as a child, I was always asking questions and fascinated about understanding the way things work. So that's what drew me to engineering. Uh, In high school, I was looking at a variety of different career paths. And initially, I thought architecture. So I did this Discover Architecture program at the University of Illinois. Little did I know that I'd be visiting Illinois later on as a student. But I quickly realized that that's not where my skills would actually lie. So I explored engineering and particularly simple engineering. I didn't know any civil engineers when I was in high school. So it was a little bit of a gamble for me going for a degree that I wasn't quite sure what it involved. And I've also had multiple interests. So this led me to go to college at the age of 16 at Valparaiso University, a liberal arts school in Indiana that had international engineering study program. So that's where I could study both civil engineering and German. And that program involved also a year abroad where I would be studying and working in Germany. I absolutely loved that experience because it gave me the best of both worlds, pursued both passions. And during my time at VU, I also ended up spending two summers working in undergraduate research on experimental analysis of liquefaction and poor water pressure generation modeling. So that's a lot of technical things altogether, but that experience in research, that was my first taste of geotechnical engineering from a practical side of things. It really piqued my interest in the profession as a potential long-term career. At the time, I wasn't considering any graduate work. I was more interested in exploring geotechnical engineering from what that would look like in practice. When I went to Germany, I ended up not just studying there, but also working for the city of Reutling that's in southern Germany. 
And I worked for their project management team as a co-op intern for the construction of their new city hall. And that was my first taste in practical geotechnical engineering because I was there from groundbreaking down to cornerstone laying ceremony. So I really got to see what I would consider some of the most interesting aspects of the project from a geotechnical engineering standpoint. And that got me really excited to work on large infrastructure projects. Uh, So when I came back to the United States, finished off my fifth year of college, I was really looking to go into practice, work for a civil engineering firm, maybe a traditional geotechnical engineering firm, and get my hands dirty a little bit like every true geotech really wants to do. But I had a pivot and ended up going to graduate school for the next five years. It was definitely not the path that I would expect myself to follow if you'd asked me 10, 15 years ago, but I definitely don't regret that at all. I think it really set the stage and gave me the time to grow and find my passions. And ultimately, that connection with University of Illinois, where I did my graduate degree, was what connected me to the job I'm in now, working as a geotechnical tunnel engineer with Mott McDonald. We're a privately owned firm with a strong history in tunnel engineering, going back to London, England. There is a great opportunity for me to apply a lot of the things I learned about geotechnical engineering, about risk evaluation, about data analysis, and just explore how that works with large infrastructure projects. So I love what I do today. It looks different every single day. And I'm sure if you talk to engineers, they would say the same thing about their job. But I've you know, had anywhere from day shift or night shift in the field working on an offshore drill rig to um, sitting and writing a technical report working on design parameter development and models for our sport of excavations, and then also preparing contract bid documents. For the five years I've been with the company, I've had quite a broad range of experiences, but they all link together, I think, with some of my strengths and technical interests as well. You got five years of undergrad, you got five years of working at the PhD. Five years of working, but it sounds like you've got like 30 years of experience there. It does feel like a lot all crammed into one. I've loved every minute of it. Yeah, you hinted at risk a little bit. Now, when I think about what it means to be a geo professional or a geotechnical engineer, there's uncertainty, there's risk and variability. And these things, I guess you could say they underpin our work as geo professionals, if I may use a uh, geotechnical pun there. But we have several methods for quantifying or alleviating the levels of uncertainty or mitigating the risks of our projects. And to be effective as geo professionals, we also have to have engineering judgment. So tell me, how does a young geo professional go about developing engineering judgment? I mean, we heard about it in our classes back in school, but how do we get that? As a first-year geotechnical engineering graduate student at University of Illinois, I took an applied soil mechanics course taught by, at the time, my advisor, Scott Olson. And part of the class requirement was to read different case histories and also read several white papers written by Ralph B. Peck. And that was my first introduction into the term engineering judgment, which I hadn't learned about until that point. One of the things I really appreciate about Ralph Peck is that he had a strong grasp of the fundamentals, but also was good at linking that with some common sense and understanding the appropriateness of those technical solutions for their application. 
I kind of posed this question to myself when I was in graduate school. You know, how do I practically speaking obtain this nebulous thing called engineering judgment? What does this actually mean? <laughs> One of the things they also joke about with the the PhD is that you know, with the PhD or through the PhD, you discover that the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. So that awareness is, I think, really humbling, but it colored my world to me with opportunity and opportunity for curiosity and connection. Because when we approach something we don't know, and most of the time in geotechnical engineering, we only have a small sliver of information informing us about the material we're working with, that can be really scary. And especially as we start to grasp how little we don't know, <laughs> it can feel like a black hole. You think about a lot of our projects, regardless of the scale, we're looking at these small little drill holes and we're trying to extrapolate information about the subsurface between those points and make informed assumptions about how we think that material will behave. I think that fear um, is a very natural response to the uncertainty we face as geoprofessionals with the material we're working with. I kind of joke that I picked this profession as a way to, I don't know, have lifelong therapy with my fear of uncertainty and risk. <laughs> but I think that's, I'm drawn to it because it fascinates me. It makes me slightly uncomfortable, but it also draws me to a point of um, connection with others, connection with information. Most people respond to that fear by seeking a level of certainty through knowledge, but the reality is we really can't know everything. And we definitely can't know anything with 100% certainty, even those parameters we're developing. There's a degree of factor safety which you incorporate, or there's a standard deviation associated with those parameters. But if we don't stop to ask the right questions when we're working on those parameters, when we're looking at these projects, we might find that we're on this aimless quest or land at a flawed solution. I think this can be applied to both our projects and our professional growth. So to me, the real antidote to that uncertainty and variability isn't more knowledge. It's an attitude of curiosity because being curious allows us to view things and view others more objectively ask good questions. We're opening ourselves up to learning both things we don't know and the people around us, but also we're opening ourselves up to being wrong, to expanding our understanding, making mistakes. But instead of that fear really crippling us and making us give up, this can be a point of you know connection. So a lot of times when we're working on these geotechnical engineering problems, we're working with the parameter, right? A lot of the times you're looking at other parameters to see how they inform the response of the either support of excavation, the slope. So you're looking at different connections between the inputs and the outputs of the design. And we can apply that to the project as a whole. We can look at the broader picture and understand how the assumptions we're making early on can then influence the decisions about perhaps the supportive excavation type, the ground treatment we're selecting. But then also we have to look at the end application when it's actually being constructed. So it forces ourselves to really look beyond just that parameter or just that property we're trying to quantify and instead look at all the other factors which may influence how we quantify that uncertainty. Do we have a good margin of error for it? I'm a bit rambling here with that, but as a profession, engineering 
is very interconnected. We cannot be a one-person show. It's inherently a collective vocation. And this applies to whether you're in research and practice or academia. In research, we're standing on the shoulders of those researchers who came before us, building deeper, broader, and higher understanding of various different topics. And in practice, we're working within a team where each person plays a unique role, brings their own unique skill sets and experiences to the table via their perspective. And in our projects, we have a variety of different clients, each with their own unique needs and goals and communities they're trying to serve. And our end products, which is thought of to be our design, but it's also the end product is the stakeholders who will be using that design, whether it's a, a dam, a tunnel, a building those will touch diverse population. So the more we understand our own limits, the better we understand ourselves, the people around us, the challenges we are trying to create solutions for, the more we will cultivate a sense of engineering judgment. Because as Ralph Peck said, a good engineer has the feel for the appropriateness of his solution from the narrowest technical details to the broadest concepts of planning. I really like that quote because it captures the essence of what I aspire to be as a geotechnical engineer and really sets the goalpost quite high. <laughs> so I don't specialize too much, but you know, also seek to constantly put the technical knowledge I have in context with um, who's going to be using it. So if I had to distill, you know, how would a young geoprofessional go about cultivating engineering judgment, I would say the first thing is to have a really strong grasp of the fundamentals and then to seek to go a little bit broader, understand the greater context of those details that you have grasped, and then test the hypothesis and calibrate your sense of proportion. I do that a lot of times, even though I'm not in the field for all my projects, I take every opportunity I can to either go out in the field or look at the core boxes to feel, to touch the soil, because that's when it becomes real to me in my mind. But also the opportunity to go out in the field, whether that's a simple walkthrough of a site or you're out there day in and day out on the drill rig, I think it gives you a sense of the impact of the work you're doing. It becomes less abstract. And you realize that the decisions you're making are truly going to have weight down the line in the project. And that ultimately you're working in a public setting and civil engineering by its very name involves a lot of interaction with the public. And we have to always have that at the forefront of our mind. So we can use the tools that we have, whether that's quantitative tools for looking at statistical probabilities or numerical probabilities with regards to uncertainty that can help inform our judgment. But we have to apply those tools in a way that also is informed by asking the right open-ended questions. I think one of the things I learned from research is the importance of not necessarily knowing what the answer is, but knowing how to ask the right questions, the ones that will point you in the right direction towards finding the solution, and also coming up with a, a plan to explore those questions in a way that's going to produce final product result, a solutions-based asking of questions, not just a philosophical asking of questions. Also seek experiences which would continue to challenge your professional grasp of your field, uh, whether that's your specialty area or trying to kind of 
dig a little bit deeper into that or seeking a more general application of that technical focus you have, then constantly challenging yourself is really important to developing that sense of engineering judgment. Otherwise, you'll just be taking old information and applying it to new situations on your projects. And I don't think that's a healthy approach to engineering innovation either. It's important to maintain humility and a willingness to own your mistakes and learn from others. I think that's part of developing and cultivating your judgment because it's interesting. I was reading this article from Jew Virtual last year. They were talking about Terzaghi, Peck, and Casagrande, and they were saying that Leo Casagrande, this was Peck, Leo Casagrande was a person of great warmth and personal charm. But he was a solid, experienced civil engineer who combined high technical ability with good judgment and improper balance, scientific rigor with an awareness of the needs of practical engineering construction. That person that he's uh, characterized, you know, that is my ideal engineer, in my opinion, because Casagrande and Ralph Peck, they looked at case histories and case studies to inform their practice. And those case histories and, and studies often were examples of failure. <laughs> you know, what can you learn from that failure? So I think that shows you that making mistakes isn't a bad thing. We shouldn't be scared of that. And that's part of coming up with your own sense of engineering judgment. When you talk about the attitude of curiosity, I like that. You talk about fostering an attitude of curiosity and then being intentional about continuing to cultivate our skills of engineering judgment. This helps with innovation and it helps with growth in an engineering career. Now, I know you're five years in your career, but tell us more about that. I'm sure I'm going to quote a lot of Peck from this. And that's completely fine. One of my other favorite quotes from him is the most successful practitioners of the art of engineering. I love how he calls it art of engineering will maintain a healthy respect for the ability of nature to produce surprises. I think that's a really great quote in part because I think that's the reality of our profession. Just in practice, we have to think about what will happen if this goes wrong. What happens if this goes right? But I think that healthy respect of surprises should be really important in your own career. I think it's easy as an interview question, right? Where do you see yourself in five years? And that's a vision. And you may have a plan associated with it. But I think it's important to hold that loosely and encourage yourself to explore other options continuously because you will surprise yourself. Peck also said that employment selected for experience and the self-discipline of private study and cultivation of your powers of observation must necessarily improve your judgment. That unlocks the key to how engineering judgment and cultivating engineering judgment can help with innovation and growth in your own personal engineering career because it takes real confidence to ask open-ended questions and self-reflect. That focus on self-discipline of private study, that private study is not focused just on technical elements. It's focused on understanding yourself as an engineer. What do you prioritize? What is your passion? What is your specialty? And then looking at your own career and looking at what opportunities do I need to take or want to take that will help me pursue that vision of engineering that I want for myself. It's a step of confidence that says, I don't need to know all the answers. I don't need to be the expert in everything. 
that confidence will then trigger you to look outside of your knowledge and seek advice of others with more or different experiences. And that will serve you well, not just in your projects, but also as you're looking to carve out your own career path, because nobody's going to have the same career path. But you can ask good questions of those in your life who you see have either similar paths to what you want to pursue or who perhaps pivoted in their career, asking them, what made you make that change? Or what did you find challenging about going from this role to this role? I think asking those questions can help you inform your own decisions, much like asking questions of the material you're looking at can help you find the best solution from a design standpoint. It's an opportunity for reflection, an opportunity to take risk in your own career. Because oftentimes we're not making a total leap of faith, both in our career and in the application of engineering judgment to address risks in projects. We're doing a measured risk. We're looking at it with a certain level of confidence about what we know, what we don't know, and then we're making a decision that is informed from that, but also informed by our experience. So when you combine those things together, you can see engineering judgment as a form of healthy discernment and understanding of informed risk. If you apply that to your career, then it will keep you also from being stagnant in your own career, from staying where you are to instead continuing to drive forward to work on the next project, to say yes to the next opportunity, whatever is going to keep you moving forward and progressing and cultivating better technical knowledge and stronger understanding of yourself as a engineer. You're definitely applying what you've learned to what you're doing professionally a beautiful manner because the reality is that I talk to so many people, right? And it's like nobody's career path is exactly the same, just like you said. And the reality is that if you're not able to weigh the pros and cons, then you can either stay somewhere for too long and not even talk about the company you're at, but just like the type of work that you're doing. But if you're not willing to take risk and try something new, you're not going to grow. And honestly, as engineers, and especially as geotechnical engineers, we should be learning every day. There's so much out there to learn. Let's talk a little bit more about earthquake and tunneling engineering. So we have listeners from all different walks of life within the geotechnical world. So you have folks that are freshmen, not sure what they want to do in engineering sense, and then professionals as well. But when we think about earthquake engineering, we think about tunneling engineering, and we're designing, right? As geotechs, how can we do that with a more people-centric focus? I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so everyone has their own story of why they went into civil engineering. But one of the reasons civil engineering really, I was drawn to it was the people aspect. The opportunity to work alongside not just engineers, but also non-engineers alike to create something that would impact people's everyday lives for the better, whether or not they knew it or not. I think about earthquake engineering specifically. That's what I did my PhD in. And I've tried to maintain a strong connection with that field despite working in a a slightly different industry. And in earthquake engineering, we understand that when the ground shakes from an earthquake, the ground responds differently based upon its initial conditions, the engineering properties, the overburden, the water level. And our projects are a lot like that. Our work impacts our community, but often differently and to varying degrees. So in our designs, we're often looking at the cause and effect of technical elements or technical properties 
Like if we don't dewater here, what will happen to the excavation there? Or, you know, if we don't support the excavation in this way over here, what will happen to the adjacent building? In the other part of the picture is how will our designs impact the people they are intended to serve? So I strongly believe that it's important as an engineer to get to know the community, but also become part of that community because we then become the stakeholders in the success of the project. So in earthquake engineering, one of the things I've been challenging myself to do, because I had such a very technical focus as a PhD student on earthquake engineering, I've been challenging myself to learn more about the non-technical aspects, the more people-centric aspects. So I recently joined the Earthquake Engineering Research Institute's Public Policy and Advocacy Committee. And in that group, we have a lot of non-engineers as well as engineers from a variety of different fields. And I think that has really opened up my eyes to how our designs impact communities during disaster response, but also in terms of how do the principles that we look at as engineers to design these structures, how does that get implemented into our legislation as part of building codes or as part of other structural requirements? And it's really challenged me to understand that what we do can't be done in a little black box. You know, we have to really come up with a plan to get input from the key stakeholders in the project and then understand how our envisioned project will actually come to fruition in a practical legislative side of things. Because a lot of times that's where earthquake engineering has the most impact is in the response to earthquakes, at least in my opinion. But in tunnel engineering, I think for me, the focus is slightly different. A lot of times our projects have a pre-design phase where we're establishing a basis of design report. And that report is more than just a technical basis, but also involves looking at community impacts. And just like you talk about those geotechnical engineering parameters that you're looking at during the site investigation phase inform you know, the decisions your decisions you'll later make for design. The way we're looking at our projects in terms of what happens if we locate a shaft in this location? How long will that road be shut down? Is there an opportunity to improve the surrounding community with our site restoration plans? A lot of that has to come into play at the very beginning where you're establishing the scope of the project in greater detail. And this is one of the reasons why for us, the risk register is considered to be a living document. We prepare that risk register that looks at a multitude of different aspects of the project, not just the technical aspect. And then we keep revisiting that throughout the project. And then when the project is in construction or completed, there's an opportunity to reflect on that risk register and see whether or not we've mitigated those risks, whether some of those risks were manifested and what we could do differently in the future to try to avoid that. I don't think engineers are really expected or should be expected to solve every single problem or know all the answers or all the factors that might influence the outcome for our projects, but we are responsible for making sure the right questions are being asked. We serve our clients and it's our responsibility to serve our clients also by representing the community and stakeholders' interests. In that sense, we are informing our design, not just from a technical aspect, from a, but also from a people-centric focus. 
because our projects will ultimately be built and they will survive long after we are around. It's important to bring people to that table, right? And really get, if you don't bring the right people to the table and ask the right questions from the beginning, you're not going to come up with solutions that are really going to outlast the problems they were created to solve. It's evaluating both the long-term and short-term effects. And you said it right, and that it's something that you have to continue to evaluate. It doesn't just stop. You know, you have to keep taking a look. And in your case, the, uh, at the risk register, Barum has this uh, quote. He has that says, "The engineer must, after all, be something of a scientist himself, with an intimate acquaintance with not only one but several different fields. He must, in addition, be a first-hand observer of nature and a realist. If he is wrong, he has not merely disproved a theory. He may have endangered life and property." This is, in fact, the challenge of civil engineering. And that's kind of intimidating, but it strikes home with the reality of the work we do. That's important to always maintain as you're working on your designs and projects. Thank you for that. And when we think about projects, I understand you've worked on multiple major heavy civil and underground infrastructure projects throughout the U.S. Can you tell us more about one of these? It could be a tunnel project you worked on and how it benefited your engineering career so far. Yeah, two projects come to mind. The first one is my first project at Mount McDonald. It was a combined sewer overflow tunnel. It was a challenging project for me for many reasons. First of all, it was my first tunnels project, and that was me transitioning out of my very specialized focus for my PhD in earthquake engineering into a large-scale infrastructure project in tunnels. (laughs) So it was... Talk about scary, right? Yeah. (laughs) It was getting to know an industry that I was not as familiar with. I was also new to the company and the job. I was still working on finalizing, depositing my thesis for graduation, and I was taking an online elective course on tunnel engineering. After years of honing my skills in one specialist area, it was really humbling to be in the position of student, really, and learning again. But what that taught me is that there is always something you can learn from another person. From a technical standpoint, the project was challenging. It had some sand seam, soft glacial, alluvial clays, uh, rapidly dilating silts, a complex, deep supportive excavation that required special construction sequencing, pretty deep drop shaft. So there was really some interesting technical elements of it too. But this was also the first project I saw from almost start to finish. So from about 3% design to bid phase. And that's an opportunity not everyone has at the start of a job at a company, just because of a timing of projects, perhaps. But it held me in good stead down the line because I learned how important it is to understand the connections between each phase of the project and each piece of information. So between the field investigation to engineering design parameters, the model that they're input into, and then how does the design get implemented in terms of the contract documents? the baseline reports, the specifications, how do we write in the understanding of risk we have about the subsurface in a way that the contractor knows how to respond via his construction. That big picture held me in good stead down the line, but it also helped me really establish an understanding of why documentation is so important. A lot of people come and go in different projects, uh, different phases, and each person has their own role typically in that project, even if they overlap. So it's really important and you can gain a lot of information just by reading the documentation associated with that project design development. I'm not talking about just 
the design memos or the technical reports of the design, but also those little details like why did we select this particular correlation instead of this other correlation to quantify this parameter? And that's a good way of passive learning, I think, because you can pick up on those little details and eventually you'll tap into that when you're applying them onto another project. The people I worked with on that project, they're still colleagues I work with five years later, and some of them have become lifelong friends. They each shaped the approach to tunnel engineering that I have today, and I really wouldn't be where I am without them. The second tunnel project, because I guess I don't have one, was a hydropower tunnel out on the West Coast, and it was a short-term assignment. I was substituting for the field inspector, and that project was interesting and challenging for several reasons. It had a tight schedule. It was the first time since construction that the tunnel had been dewatered, and there were several variable rock conditions along the alignment and an opportunity for value engineer in the project. So I shadowed the owner's engineer when the designer came out to do a tunnel walkthrough, got to hear from a renowned specialist in the field about the geology of the location. And for me, it just reinvigorated my sense of excitement for the profession, for geotechnical engineering, but also for tunnel engineering. I think you always need to have those two types of projects, the ones that challenge you and the ones that restore your passion for the profession. And sometimes they're one and the same. Beautiful. And to get that so early in your career is awesome. (laughs) Yes, totally. Now you hinted at the business professional relationships that you had at your company. And, you know, I've definitely seen that that is important as we grow our careers. And in your opinion, what are some things that engineers can do to grow these professional relationships? I would say that it's important to look both inside the organization and outside the organization for support and professional relationships. I think it requires a lot of intentionality as well with growing your professional relationships. It's important for us to not be afraid of reevaluating your commitments to ensure that you have sufficient bandwidth, not only to do a good work at your job, but also to get to know people and cultivate relationships with them because it's not going to happen overnight. I also believe that it's important to get to know people as people rather than just an opportunity to expand your network or find new contacts to help you in your everyday work. Because ultimately, that becomes the richest of relationships. When you see people as multifaceted, their experiences inside and outside engineering typically inform their decisions in their work. Hand in hand with that, it's important to also find a mentor. And I have many mentors. One or two are, I would say, formal mentors, and several are informal ones. They're people who I admire, who I go to for advice, not just about engineering questions, but also how to navigate things in my career. And then within those relationships, as I'm working to cultivate them, I think it's important to ask good questions. So this is something I go back to time and again is asking open-ended questions. Read a lot too, because those will help you come up with good questions. I love to read. So maybe not everyone does, but you can look at engineering magazines, um, find technical societies that you want to become part of. Maybe you spend only a short amount of time there. Maybe you decide you want to dive in deeper and become part of the committee for that organization. But any opportunity you have for passive and active learning, whether that's reading, attending webinars, spending some time maybe revisiting the things you learned as a student to refresh your understanding of the fundamentals. 
I think those are all important aspects of developing yourself personally and professionally. We talked about it earlier of being a lifetime learner as an engineering professional. Tell us a little bit more about why you wanted to get your PhD. The importance of lifelong learning is pretty clear because we have a distinct privilege as geotechnical engineers to be in a profession that is respected by society as valuable, but I've also found it to be a gift. Being in a field that not only matches my skills, but also aligns with my interests, I don't take that for granted. So for me, engineering is my vocation. And we hold a responsibility as engineers to protect and honor that responsibility the public puts in our hands, not for personal gain, but for the good of the community. I think the importance of lifelong learning is pretty clear because it directly impacts the solutions that we're creating. If we become stagnant in our career, then we become poor engineers that are really not serving the interests of the community. On a different front, what made me pursue my PhD? I think I mentioned it earlier that it was a little bit of a pivot and surprise for me. I always chuckle a bit when I think about how I came to that because it was quite an unexpected journey for me. <laughs> I had always told myself, I'm sure other engineers have heard this too, that you know I want to go into practice after graduation. A, a good engineer has a good understanding of the field, has gotten dirty a little bit, been out on a drill rig. I'd also had in my mind that I wasn't the type, quote unquote, for graduate school. And in fact, in my fifth year of undergraduate, the year I got back from Germany and my co-op there, I had a crisis of identity wondering whether I was even cut out for this profession. But that fall, one interaction, one decision that year totally changed the trajectory of my life. I had a dean of the College of Engineering. I had gone into him because I needed a recommendation letter for a job I was applying to. And he had helped sponsor the engineering program, the international engineering program I had been part of. And he happened to be looking at a bunch of applications from former alums for the National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellowship. And he turned to me and he was like, Aaron, I think you'd be great for this program. And I had no clue what he was talking about, <laughs> but um, it was a highly competitive, prestigious graduate research program that I thought, oh my gosh, you know, people with 4.0s don't get this often. <laughs> what am I doing applying to this? And so I said, well, tell me more about it. And so he told me, well, you know, it involves three essays, one personal, one on your, you know, a little bit about you, and then a research plan. And I think you'd be great for it because you have a really unique story to tell with your interest in German and Germany. And I'd be happy to write you a recommendation letter. And I said, great. I like this idea. When is it due? He's like, oh, a week from now. I was like, are you kidding me? This is where having good people who believe in you really opens their eyes to opportunities because they see a truth in you that you may not see. I had three professors rally around me. I had worked with my undergraduate research professor to write a research plan, and he ultimately became my research advisor along with Scott Olson. And I had my English professor help me with my personal essay. I had several other professors kind of tweak my papers and edit them. I hold myself up in my little dorm room for like the whole weekend, turned those papers out, submitted them. And I was like, this is like such a long shot. Who even knows I'll get this? Fast forward to April of that year. And 
I was sitting there panicking because I had a potential summer opportunity lined up. I didn't have a permanent position at a company. I didn't know whether or not I should be going to grad school. I had applied to like eight different universities and none of them were giving me research positions or TA assistantships. So I was really panicking. And then I opened up my email that April and it said, congratulations, you have won a National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellowship, a three-year fellowship program to pursue your graduate program of your choice. I was flabbergasted. I ran down the hallway of my, I was back in senior design room and I ran down the hallway of the building, stormed open probably into a committee meeting and turned to my advisor and the dean. I was like, I won. (laughs) But you know, I look back on that and that was such a moment of risk for me. I did not in the million of scenarios I thought for me post-graduation, thought I'd be going to graduate school. And not only that, going to the top school of my choice, University of Illinois, for free, essentially, and also getting to select my own advisor. Not every PhD student has that opportunity. And I had written my research plan specifically with my undergraduate research and Scott Olson in mind. So it totally changed the trajectory of my life. I still poo-pooed it a little bit and was like, ah, I don't think I'll stay for the PhD. I'll just stay. I'll get my master's degree and then I'll move on. But then it was year two and I was facing year three, the last year of my funding. And I was like, you know, I absolutely love my project. I have a great advisor. I'm already two, two and a half years into this. And I'm just starting to get to the point where I'm getting to the exciting part of my research where I actually get to do the lab testing I get to apply my hypothesis, test it out. So I said, all right, I'll sit down, figure out a plan with my advisor, see if there's a way I can graduate in five, no more than six years total. And if I can do that, then I'd like to continue and see this through. So really the reason why I pursued my PhD is because someone else saw the potential in me, but then also because I wanted to see my project to completion. I loved the advisor I was working with. I loved the topic I was studying. And I saw this PhD as a real opportunity for personal growth. I think the engineer I am today is largely shaped by that PhD experience that I think I would not have had if I hadn't had some key people supporting me and really encouraged me to push myself beyond my own self-imposed boundaries and self-imposed concept of what makes me an engineer. I love telling that story because it just makes me chuckle every single time, but it also makes me so happy to look back and see how that has influenced who I am today. I'd love to ask you one more question. Do you have another piece of advice? Let's call it your final piece of advice that you give the listeners before we go to our break. So there's a favorite children's book I grew up with that later became a TV series. It's called The Magic School Bus, where an elementary school teacher, Miss Frizzle and her class, get aboard a magic school bus, which takes them on field trips to learn about different science educational topics. They go to places in different times. And I just love her byline, which is take chances, make mistakes, get messy. (laughs) And I would say that's my biggest piece of advice for engineers out there is take chances, make some mistakes and get messy. I love that attitude. And it really is the epitome of how I approach engineering, which is a fun, 
amazing opportunity to learn about the world around me and to learn a little bit more about myself. So with that, we're going to come back in just a minute and we're going to close this one out with Aaron and our career factor safety end segment. Stick around. All right. Welcome back. It's time for our career factor of safety in segment. In geotechnical engineering, just like many disciplines of engineering, it's important to incorporate a factor of safety into your design. But what about incorporating a factor of safety into your career? Today, of course, we're talking with Dr. Aaron Sibley, PE. Aaron, you've already had a very successful career so far. When you look back at your career, what's one thing you've implemented that's given yourself, let's call it a factor of safety in your career? Can I give two things? Go for it. I think the first thing would be to surround yourself with good quality people and good quality people. That is more than just people who support you and encourage you and believe in you. I think that's a good aspect of it, but it should be people that you trust and people who challenge you because it's those outside influences that really encourage you to be the best version of you, but also can look at you and point out areas of growth that you need to step into. So people who will mentor you and people who will also support you through difficult points in your career or challenging projects. So surrounding yourself with good quality people is one for a factor of safety in my career. The other factor of safety I have is uh, cultivating a sense of self and identity outside of engineering. So for the longest time, I thought that being an engineer is what uh, the primary thing that defined me. Over the past couple of years, I've started to turn that on its head a little bit and realize that it's the other characteristics that I bring to engineering that defines who I am as an engineer. So my sense of curiosity, humility, self-reflection, perceptiveness, determination, excitement, and passion. Those are things that really drive my approach to engineering and I know that regardless of what my career looks like, if I hold on to those aspects of myself, then it doesn't really matter what I'm doing because it's the way in which I'm doing it. My ability to understand who I am outside of engineering feeds into being a better engineer. Well, thank you so much for coming on and thank you for sharing all the great insights with us. You shared a lot of great information and advice is going to be super helpful for our listeners. But listener wanted to reach out to you. What's the best way for them to get you? You're on social media or email you want to share? So you can find me on LinkedIn. And then you can also reach out to me at my personal Gmail account, which is Aaron, E-R-I-N dot Dylan 1117 at gmail.com. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This is great. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. Please feel free to go to geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, that being episode 38, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Until next time, we wish you the very best in all your geotechnical engineering endeavors. Peace. The Geotechnical Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the host and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineers, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.